0: Turned Up Dead is a true crime podcast. The cases we cover include details of violence, sexual assault, suicide, and homicide. It is not suitable for children, and listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed in this show are those of individuals and not Turned Up Dead. Hello, and welcome back to Turned Up Dead. I'm Fiona. This is the second part of a two part episode about the murder of Jodie Jones and the conviction of Luke Mitchell. If you haven't heard part one yet, please listen to that, because this episode won't make much sense otherwise. Let's get back to the case. Those who believe Mitchell is innocent say the police had tunnel vision, and Mitchell was convicted in a trial by media. Jodie was killed on the evening on June 30th. Speaking to the Scotsman in 2005, Detective Superintendent Dobby said, quote, it wasn't until July 3rd that our suspicions about Mitchell increased. We had a degree of suspicion, but not enough to detain him. End quote. These suspicions came from what Dobby described as critical differences in what Mitchell had told him about finding Jodie's body and what Jodie's family had said. He claimed that these critical differences were based on whether or not Mitchell had walked past the V shaped break in the wall before he climbed over and found Jodie's body. The detective chief superintendent said that he was focused on Mitchell from day three of the investigation, and with him being Jodie's boyfriend, he was always going to be a suspect. However, the detective's claim that this was because of Mitchell and Jodie's family's statements about finding her body would be called into question if the following is true. Apart from police statements and what has been reported in the media about the trial, Relatively little is known about the details of this case. The trial transcripts aren't available to the public. The evidence that raises this dispute was made public by an author named Dr. Sandra Lean. Dr. Lean champions for Mitchell's innocence, and in the past worked with his defence team. She says Mitchell's defence team shared the information they had about his case with her. Alice, Janine and Stephen's statements about finding Jody changed from what they told police at the time to what they testified during Mitchell's trial. According to Lean, each of their first statements were consistent with Mitchell's version of events. They first said that Mia, his German Shepherd dog, had alerted Mitchell by sniffing and jumping up at the wall, so Mitchell doubled back and climbed over the v break. After about a month, their statements began to leave out the dog. By the time they got to court, their statements had become quite different and all claimed that Mitchell went directly to the V in the wall and led them right to Jodie's body, not that the dog had alerted him. A dog trainer from London tested Mia to see if she was able to track and alert her handler as Mitchell claimed. Mia passed, but this wasn't used at trial. Questions are also raised about Andrina Bryson's sighting of Mitchell and Jodie. The clothes that Miss Bryson first described Jodie wearing were nothing like what she wore. Miss Bryson allegedly first described the girl she had seen as wearing blue bootcut jeans. Jodie's style of clothing was quite different. On the day she was killed, she was wearing wide-legged black trousers and a distinctive hoodie. It was a Deftones hoodie with a large Deftones logo on the back. The logo was in the style of the Dickies logo, bright red white and blue in colour. Miss Bryson didn't mention any type of logo or graphic on the hoodie. This witness's testimony is crucial to the prosecution's case because Miss Bryson is the only person who can place Mitchell with Jodie in the moments before she was killed. In an interview with James English for his podcast Anything Goes with James English, Dr Lean claimed that Miss Bryson's brother-in-law was at Alice Walker's house telling Jodie's family about the sighting the morning after the murder. The brother-in-law is said to have encouraged Miss Bryson to go to the police, and he is said to have been present when Miss Bryson gave her statements to the police. Her witness testimony was touted as being independent, but if this was proved to be true, it would call her independence from the case into question. There is also controversy surrounding the photo line-up that the police showed Miss Bryson. Mitchell's photo in the lineup was the Polaroid photo that the police took on August 14th, 2003. Mitchell's photo is said to be the only image with a solid white background. Mitchell's defence wanted to call an expert witness to speak about memory recollection during the trial, but this was denied because the memory expert hadn't spoken to Miss Bryson. The cyclist's statement is also said to have changed. His first statement allegedly describes him hearing a noise like leaves moving. This then changed to a struggling sound, and then to the struggling sort of sound, a human thing, that he spoke about at trial. Miss Bryson's sighting occurred in a short window of time. Many believed Jody was still at home when Miss Bryson saw the young man and woman at the end of Rowan's dive path at around 5pm. Earlier newspaper articles reported Jodie leaving her house at 5.30pm. In the following days, Jodie's leaving time changes to around 5pm and then finally 4.50pm. If Jodie didn't leave her home until 5.30pm, Miss Bryson can't have witnessed her on the path. In his statements to the police, Mitchell claimed that he received a text from Jodie that said she'll be down later. He says he took this to mean after 5.50pm as usual, as he cooked the family dinner most weekdays and would usually meet Jodie and his other friends around or after 6pm. On July 14th, the Daily Record reported that Jodie quote, texted Mitchell before leaving home to say she was on her way, but she never arrived, End quote. Neither of these messages were found on Mitchell's phone. Only two deleted messages were reported to have been recovered from his phone. The first text was from his alleged second girlfriend on June 27th and the second was sent at 12.29am on July 1st, 2003. It was from his mother. Also questioned, is Jodie's grounding or curfew being lifted? Statements from Jodie's sister, Janine, and grandmother, Alice said it had been lifted a week before her death. It's also been claimed that Jodie was out the previous two evenings before her death. Although Satanic Panic had its height in the 80s and 90s, there are aspects of it in this case. From quite early in the investigation, the police seemed very focused on Mitchell's taste in music and goth culture. During his second interview on July 4th, Mitchell was asked about his interest in horror films, and police statements allegedly show that officers were asked to search Mitchell's house for anything related to Marilyn Manson. On July 5th, an article appeared in the paper with a quote from the police, saying, quote, "...we will be looking at what Jodie and her social circle were interested in, and an obvious area will be their ties to the goth movement." we will be examining if the manner in which she was killed has any links to the violent world that many goths find fascinating and will be speaking to all her friends who had similar interests End quote. "someone who says they worked for the herald newspaper at the time of jodie's murder says he received a very strange phone call from a senior police officer the officer told him that luke mitchell was definitely guilty" and much of the conversation centred on Mitchell's love of goth music and his alternative lifestyle. The day after Mitchell was found guilty, even The Guardian put out an article with the headline Goth fan who craved notoriety and said he was in league with the devil. The tabloids ran articles with headlines such as Devil's Spawn, Mitchell's Satan Shrine and the demons that fueled Mitchell's bloodlust. Many of the things Mitchell had written on his schoolbooks, such as Satan Master Lead Us Into Hell, were lyrics from songs and phrases from computer games. Mitchell's supporters also point out that he wasn't even a fan of Marilyn Manson. The only things the police found of Mitchell's to do with Marilyn Manson were a ripped page of a calendar in a waste bin, and a DVD that had come free with a music magazine. And the magazine had been purchased two days after Jodie was killed. Mitchell not being a fan of Marilyn Manson makes the idea that he was influenced by Manson's paintings of Elizabeth Short's murder even less plausible. Mitchell's supporters also question why other people weren't subject to the same level of suspicion and scrutiny as Mitchell. In 2005... Detective Chief Superintendent Dobby told the Scotsman newspaper that they interviewed everyone possible, including every male they had viewed with general suspicion, telling the paper, quote, that group included any males known to Jody, both relatives and friends, end quote. A witness at trial said she and her boyfriend had noticed a man behaving strangely in the New Battle area, She reported he was wearing a coat that was zipped up and that he was in his 20s. Reportedly, this man wasn't found and interviewed until three months later. On the evening of Jodie's murder, there was a concert on at the nearby school. In a Facebook post, a man who was the same age as Jodie when she was killed said that on that evening, he was walking to the school concert with a female friend when they became aware of a man behind them acting strange. In his post, he described, quote, We freaked out and ran, and he literally chased us to the school gate, then ran towards the woods. The author of this post says he and his friend reported this, and that the police took a statement from them and mentioned a line up, but after that they heard nothing. John Ferris and Gordon Dickey's words seem to be taken at face value even after not being truthful about the times they were in the area. People also doubt David Dickey's story. A man walking eight dogs would be fairly noticeable, yet no witnesses have ever come forward to say that they saw him. It would also have still been light at 8pm, which makes it strange that he, nor any of his eight dogs, noticed Jodie's body. People also wonder why Janine's fiance. Stephen Kelly wasn't investigated more thoroughly. When a police officer approached him after they discovered Jodie's body, Kelly reportedly asked, quote, I suppose you've been to my place already. End quote. Years later, he claimed that this was his attempt at humor. Kelly Seaman was on the t shirt Jodie was wearing when she was murdered, and he was also present when her body was found. However, the police didn't take the clothing he was wearing until a week later, when it had already been washed. And it's almost as if the police went out of their way to come up with an innocent explanation for his seamen being on Jodie's clothing when she was murdered. It has been reported that Alice held Jodie's body, yet the police didn't take her clothing, or Janine's, until a week later, when it had also been washed. In 2006 the police got a match from the DNA found on the condom. The man said that he was there, but that he hadn't seen Jody's body by the wall. He claimed he had gone to the Woodland area to masturbate because he shared his bedroom with his brother and didn't have anywhere private at home. There is also speculation surrounding a man named Mark Kane. Kane is now deceased, but when Jody was killed, he lived nearby. His name is allegedly in police files, but the police didn't speak with him about Jodie's murder. Years after the murder, Kane's friend disclosed that the morning after the murder, Kane arrived at his house with scratches on his face. To explain them, the friend said, Kane gave a story of him falling in a bush. He told his friend he was in the woodland where Jodie had been found, but then became flustered when asked more questions and left. There are also reported to have been two confessions to Jodie's murder. A man named Alan Roberts allegedly confessed to killing Jodie on the day Mitchell's trial began. Roberts was convicted in November 2004 for attacking a woman just five miles from Rowan's path. He had violent fantasies about sex attacks on women he didn't know and carried what was described as a rape kit. The other man allegedly confessed to the police. This man hasn't been publicly named, but he is believed to have been in the area where Jodie was killed. People do make false confessions, but given what's known about these two, it does seem odd that they weren't taken more seriously. Mitchell's trial was held in Edinburgh. Although Jodie wasn't from Edinburgh and wasn't killed there, Edinburgh is only nine miles away from where she died. People from Jody's neighbourhood worked in Edinburgh. The murder was a big story and people in Edinburgh had been following news of the investigation since the discovery of Jody's body. The fact that the trial had to be restarted and a jury member removed proves the difficulty for a local jury to be impartial and have no connection to the case. Another jury member who was involved in deciding Mitchell's fate allegedly gave the Joneses a thumbs up during the trial. The press reported on Mitchell's relationship with his mother as if it were off somehow. Following Jodie's murder, him seeing her body and his subsequent questioning, Mitchell was prescribed medication to cope with the shock. His mother was worried about him going up and down the stairs when medicated, so he was sleeping downstairs on a sofa in the living room. His mother also slept in the living room on the other sofa. However, when this was reported, the media implied that Mitchell and his mother were sleeping together in the same bed. There was no mention that Mitchell was being medicated for shock in these articles or throughout his trial. The prosecution presented Mitchell stirring his urine out of context. Mitchell started doing this after all his belongings were taken and he was subjected to an hours-long interrogation. Keeping hold of his urine may very well have been a reaction to the shock of what he had recently experienced. The lack of evidence linking Mitchell to Jodie's murder is also a concern to many who wonder how plausible it is for a 14-year-old boy to murder Jodie in such a manner and leave no evidence, especially given the short time frame Mitchell is said to have done it in. Despite news reports that indicated otherwise, None of the DNA recovered from the crime scene was confirmed as being from Mitchell. Mitchell's DNA did match some parts of the DNA from the scene, but no more than most other white males. The Crown didn't have anything other than witness testimony that Mitchell had ever owned a Parker jacket before Jodie was murdered, and there was no forensic evidence that clothing had been burned in the log burner. Photographs had been published in newspapers of Mitchell wearing the new Parker jacket, which may have influenced the witnesses' recollections. I also found talk of other people burning clothing on the night Jodie was killed, and reports of remnants of burnt clothes and cable found on wasteland in the area. In 2012, Mitchell requested a lie detector test. His mother had already taken one and passed. Throughout the trial, the prosecution tried to show Mitchell's mother as a liar. Wanting to quash this, she took and passed the lie detector test in February 2012. On April 25th, 2012, Mitchell also took and passed a lie detector test. While not much is thought about lie detector tests and their results in Scotland, Mitchell's supporters believe the fact that they both requested one Has some relevance. After Mitchell was found guilty, his lawyer switched his focus to appeals. Mitchell's first appeal was rejected in 2008. His lawyer had argued that the prosecution smeared the teenager's character during the original trial and that Mitchell didn't get a fair trial because his trial was too close to where the crime took place. He said the dramatic and emotional media coverage would have impacted people's minds. The judge determined that the publicity surrounding Jodie's murder hadn't denied him a fair trial, and rejected his appeal. Mitchell's second appeal was rejected in 2011. His legal team argued that there had been a miscarriage of justice because of how the police had treated him when he was first interviewed. It found that Mitchell's police interrogation had been quote, overbearing and hostile, end quote, and said that quote, such conduct, particularly when the suspect is a 15 year old youth, can only be deplored. End quote. However, it was decided that there hadn't been a miscarriage of justice because there wasn't a forced confession. In 2014, the Scottish Criminal Cases Review Commission released their report, in which they had found that Mitchell's human rights had been infringed. At the time of recording, Luke Mitchell is, in the eyes of the law, guilty of murdering Jodie Jones, and he has been incarcerated for more than 17 years for the crime. So what do I think? Please remember that the following is my personal opinion, and that I have no background in law or law enforcement. Saying that, I think it was a terrible investigation with double standards throughout. I understand that Mitchell was bound to be a suspect, and I think he should have been. However, I definitely think other people should have been looked at as closely as he was. One example is Ferris and Dickie. Given that they were seen in the area at the time, Ferris cut his hair, Neither of them came forward, and then when they did, they said they were on the path earlier than they actually were. The police seemed very trusting of their explanations, and appeared to have treated them lightly. It's been reported that there was an initial thought that more than one person had been involved in Jodie's death, which makes the police's dealings with Ferris and Dicky even more puzzling. After the trial, Detective Superintendent Dobby told the Scotsman that the police tried to eliminate Mitchell from their inquiries, but, quote, they just couldn't, end quote. Yet they seemed to quite easily rule out other people who they found evidence of at the scene. I can't believe that Kelly wasn't looked at as a suspect, and I don't believe the innocent explanation for his semen being on Jodie's t-shirt. I also doubt the story from the man who left the condom at the scene. He said he was there at about 8-9pm, to when it would have still been light, so I find it difficult to believe that he didn't see Jodie's body. Of course, there is also the possibility that Jodie's body wasn't there at that time. I'd also like to know what happened to the stocky man. The police were keen to find him, and then he wasn't spoken about again. If found and ruled out, I'd like to know how the police were able to rule him out. At trial, Finley described the behaviour of the detectives as a disgrace, and the Mitchell's family liaison officer conceded that the investigation was a shambles. The forensic scientist, who had arrived at the scene at around 8am, agreed with Mitchell's lawyer that Jody's body shouldn't have been moved before his arrival and that the scene should have been protected from the rain. But Detective Dobby defends his team's actions. He said the police had done a great job, and, quote, I am open to suggestions as to where we could have made improvements in the investigation, but I can't think of anything obvious. End quote. I would certainly question why Alice, Janine and Kelly's statements changed, if they did. The idea that Mitchell knew where Jody's body was was central to the case for his guilt so whether or not Mia the dog alerted Mitchell to that section of the wall is very important hearing that Mia was involved might have made the jury less likely to believe that Mitchell knew where Jody's body was Mitchell's statements remained consistent which i believe is important people who are being untruthful often change their statements over multiple interviews While some people may be very good liars and be able to maintain a single narrative, Mitchell was only 14 at the time. To me, it seems the police were more obsessed with Marilyn Manson than Luke Mitchell was. I'm not sure if they were suffering from some sort of satanic panic or were just very keen on their theory. I think the idea that Mitchell was trying to recreate the murder from Marilyn Manson's paintings is too far of a leap and that the emphasis the police put on a free Marilyn Manson DVD is an indication of how desperately they wanted this theory to be believed. I think the media definitely played a role. I'm sure people would have inferred that Mitchell was the police's main suspect from the media coverage. I also think that when these appeared alongside articles about DNA evidence and witnesses, it reinforced the reader's belief that Mitchell was guilty. I find it extremely unlikely that the jury hadn't also been swayed by the media. Overall, I find it difficult to believe that someone can commit a murder that the police themselves said involved the loss of so much blood and not have any trace of blood on them, let alone a 14-year-old, and especially within such a tight time frame. Thousands of pieces of evidence were collected, and none of it showed any confirmed connection to Mitchell and the police had also searched his father's house. Mitchell was taken directly from Rowan's dyke path to the police station, where he was examined, and the police found no evidence of Jodie's blood being on him. There was also no evidence of him having cleaned up at his house. I was surprised to learn about some of the people who were quickly ruled out, giving their proximity to Jodie around the time of her death, and some of the evidence... I personally don't think Mitchell should have been found guilty, given what I've learned about this case. But I'm not surprised that he was, due to what I've read about his trial. But whether he should have been found guilty at trial, and whether he was guilty of committing the murder, are two different questions. I personally don't believe that Luke Mitchell is guilty of murdering Jodie Jones. What do you think? Thank you for listening to Turned Up Dead. All the sources for this episode can be found at turnedupdead.com. Earlier articles from the Daily Record aren't available online, and are thanks to people who have found and photographed them from old newspapers. Other sources I used for this episode include court documents and the Facebook group Jody Jones and Luke Mitchell, who got justice. The official group, which includes many locals and people from across Scotland and abroad. The admins say the group, quote, is dedicated to making public the flaws in the police investigation and campaigning for an independent inquiry to look into these flaws, end quote. One of the group's admins is Dr Sandra Lean, whose book, Innocence Betrayed, A True Story of Justice Abandoned, takes an in-depth look at the investigation and trial. Dr. Lean is also the organiser of a Change.org petition for a full independent review of Mitchell's case. You can find the petition by searching Change.org for Luke Mitchell case, and I'll put a link in the show notes for anyone who wants to sign. This case was a suggestion from a listener, so thanks to Danny Cash for that. If you have any suggestions, you can email them to me at turnedupdeadpodcast at gmail.com Thanks again for listening and remember, if you listen carefully even the words of liars will tell you the truth.